Wherever you are in your adoption journey, we are a community centered around love, trust, and respect for the experience and opportunities that have made us families. We promise to share, encourage, support, and celebrate the day-to-day of adoptive mamahood together. I'm Liz. And I'm Sarah. And together, we are Two Adoptive Mamas. Welcome back to Two Adoptive Mamas. We're so excited to have you tonight. Uh, This evening, we have the pleasure of... um, talking with Natalie Vecchione, who is the host of the FASD Hope podcast. Um, Natalie and I connected um, virtually through social media, through a book launch team, and um, because we're both uh, working together with the book launch. And then also we both have our own podcasts and um, Sarah and I are just so thrilled to be able to chat with her and learn more about FASD and parenting. Um, So thank you for having us or well, thank you for being here. We're kind of hosting each other, right? So <laughs> it's great to meet you, Natalie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Natalie, we'll start things off. If you could share with us how you became an adoptive mama and just a little bit about your journey and growing your family. So our story is 100% um, God orchestrated. I learned when I was 16 that I had very severe endometriosis. And I learned this the hard way through pain and going to the hospitals and everything. And when I was in college, um, I met my husband in college and he actually, um, we, we had become friends and um, I had my first laparoscopy. I, I had seen a whole bunch of doctors because usually you don't get diagnosed with endometriosis so young. Um, and I had seen a whole slew of doctors and this one wonderful surgeon, you know, I was 20, almost 21 years old at the time. And she said, I, I believe you. I, I think you have endometriosis. And I had a laparoscopy done on, uh, during spring break. And uh, my husband um, then offered, you know, to take notes for me in classes and whatnot. And I found out that I had very severe endometriosis. And uh, the surgeon had said, you know, just to give you a heads up, this is one of the worst cases I think I've ever seen. And, um, you know, you just need to be mindful of this. And, you know, so um, <laughs> about a month later, my husband and I started dating. And, um, you know, when, when the Lord puts, you know, your, your husband or your wife in, in, uh, in your life, you, you know it. And I knew it by um, when I told my husband, I said, you know, we've been friends and we're honest, you know, that I had the surgery there's a really good chance that I'm not going to be able to get pregnant. And um, I knew he was my husband when he said, I don't love you because you can get pregnant. I love you because you're you. And if you can't get pregnant, then we will adopt. And that's how we'll build our family. So fast forward to getting engaged, getting married, going to grad school. We married very young because of, you know, what we were told. And um, if you don't know much about endometriosis, it kind of feeds off of hormones. So we were trying to get pregnant while we were in graduate school. We had uh, since moved from North Carolina to Miami, tried to get pregnant. As we were trying to get pregnant, I was actually getting worse. I was actually getting sicker. Um, so I had lost one ovary after one attempt and then 
we had one last attempt. I was done with grad school. We were going to do this. And my husband um, was like, this, this is it. If, if this doesn't work out, we're, we're going to take a break and we're going to start adopting. And by then I was in my almost late twenties. Um, and uh, we tried one last time and could not do it. And um, my husband, you know, was the one who said, this is, this is when we stop. This is when we take a break. And then, then we're going to start, you know, adopting. So we did. And um, praise God, I, my health became better after my hysterectomy. I had a total abdominal hysterectomy at 28. Not something I recommend for everybody, but for me, it was a quality of life issue. I slowly got my health back. You know, having um, menopause, surgical menopause at 28 was not great. Had has a lot of other things that um, went through, but um, you know, it gave me the opportunity physically to be able to be a mom. Ironically enough, that sounds really strange, but getting not being able to get pregnant actually gave me the health I needed to become a mom. So um, we started, we knew domestic adoption was the way we were going to go. We were living, uh, after that, we had moved to Philly. Um, so we, um, we basically started, you know, our home study and all that stuff. And this was in 2000. And uh, we, um, you know, got everything ready and just, you know, all those wonderful things that you, you picture and pray about, you know, when you're getting ready to, to adopt your first child. And, um, and then September 11th happened, you know, and that was a game changer for everything. Basically, our group of people in our um, agency, you know, we went through a, a nonprofit um, uh, Christian um, agency. They basically said, nobody's, none of our birth moms are placing um, their, their children. And we're suggesting to all the families to try to find other agencies, you know, because all of our birth moms have, have backed out since September 11th. So that, that was um, pretty amazing. And um, so again, my husband and I, we prayed and then, you, you know, we found another agency and uh, the agency that we found actually were looking for married traditional Christian couples, which was like, wow, you know? <laughs> um, so I, I had just turned 30. My husband, um, you know, was about to turn 32. We were filling out the paperwork, not knowingly. We filled out the paperwork for the second agency the day our son was born. We did not know that. Um, and our son was born um, actually, so I, I won't give the spoiler. I'll finish the story. So um, about two and a half weeks later, we got a phone call. And um, from the second agency, and they said, you've been picked. And this was back in, you know, uh, 2002. This was about a, a, a year later. And uh, they were like, you've been picked. And we we're like, oh, my goodness. We went from, like, nothing to here's the big call you've been waiting for. So I just started crying. And my husband was at work. And, you know, I, I got on my knees and I was praying. And, and the social worker said, okay, well, he's considered special needs because he's been in the hospital for two and a half weeks. And, you know, she shared all the details and we we're like, okay, okay. You know, just prayed and, and just, we're like, okay. And they said, it's a boy. And I was just like, yeah, because in, in my mind growing up, I always wanted to have a boy and then a girl, you know, and, and uh, that, that was just, you know, when, when you're young and you and your family. That's, that's how I wanted our family to be. So it was a boy and I was thrilled. And uh, the social worker said, 
he was born on um, such and such a date and he was actually born on my husband's birthday. So that's when I knew the Lord was saying, go get your son. Um, and, you know, we, we took um, his paperwork that we had. It was a closed adoption, so we had limited paperwork. Um, we took the paperwork we had, and we took it to the pediatrician who was going to be our pediatrician. And she looked it over, and again, nothing had indicated any alcohol exposure, but there were things that were flags down the road when he was finally diagnosed, you know, things like, um, you know, no prenatal care. His birth mom had been kicked out of uh, the maternity place she was staying at. Um, just a bunch of things that just kind of afterwards when, you know, we finally had her diagnosis, everything was just like, ah, this all makes sense. So we met him, we picked him up. Um, the, he was in NICU for, I think, the first week. And then uh, he was in the pediatric unit. They were just, you know, taking care of him, getting him stable and everything. And he was a tough little fighter. And we were living just outside of Philadelphia. And the staff nicknamed him Rocky. And uh, so everybody, when we went to meet Rocky, you know, it was just like the most amazing day. You know, this is little tiny little baby who was just so tough and just went through so much. From what I learned about FASD, uh, most, you know, infants when they're born with FASD, they present with primary characteristics medically. Things like low birth weight, failure to thrive, sensory issues, sleep is a big one. So if you're listening to me and if you have a baby and they're having major sleep issues, that can be a red flag for prenatal alcohol exposure. I'm going to share um, with Liz and Sarah, I'm going to share with you um, one of the books that I read that really just got me in the right direction, my husband and I in the right direction about learning about FASD. Um, so as he grew, we just dealt, we, we saw, oh my goodness, probably like close to 10 different specialists for his medical needs. Um, and again, they were all tied to that alcohol exposure. Um, but again, nobody mentioned alcohol because he was a domestic adoption and because, you know, he wasn't from foster care and he wasn't from an international country. And back then, 19 years ago, almost 19 years ago, those were, and actually those are kind of still what people think about when they think about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, is they think of primarily those two populations, which yes, the predominance, especially in foster care is, is up to 80% is the estimate. 80% of kids in foster care have an FASD. Um, but again, it's not limited to that. And I'll share a little more information um, as we talk. So the, the, the big red flag that got us going was when he was just before his second birthday, he started regressing developmentally. And that, that was a flag. Um, so we had a sleep study um, when he was just before uh, two because he started having night terrors. And if you are not familiar with child development, night terrors do happen, but they usually don't happen until a child is about four or five. They don't happen that young. He was not even two yet. So that really raised a red flag and his attachment was starting to regress. He was, didn't want to leave me, didn't want, you know, didn't want to go to trusted adults, things like that. So we made an appointment for a sleep study to see if maybe it was something neurological that was not picked up. And we went to, you know, this hospital, a different hospital than we had usually gone to. And they did the sleep study. And of course, no sleep 
was <laughs> nobody slept, myself, my son, or anybody. Um, and really, the results really were very un inconclusive. However, when my husband and I went a week or two later for the results with the neurologist, and he came in and he looked at our son, and he didn't even look or acknowledge my husband or I. He looked at our son and he turned and he looked at the group of students and said, look at that child. He's got mild fetal alcohol effects. And let me tell you why. And those words were never, ever used with our son, you know, um, so he started rattling off these conditions and my husband and I just looked at each other and then we just were in disbelief. We could not believe we were hearing this. Um, and so, you know, we'd ask the doctor, we said, well, what do we do? What do we do? And, and finally, he just really abruptly just was like, oh, just put him in early intervention and he'll be fine. And I, I again, I, I didn't know then, I, I know now this because it was part of this journey, but he never wrote down the diagnosis. He never wrote down anything he suspected, like what we learned, you know, made up his, you know, um, when he got his diagnosis, we never got any of that on paper. So we just had those words and those words pretty much stuck with us throughout, you know, until his final diagnosis, we would always bring the, them up later. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorders um, are a spectrum of disabilities. There, there are uh, five diagnoses that fall under the FASD umbrella. They are a brain-based disability caused by prenatal alcohol exposure. Prenatal alcohol exposure equals prenatal brain damage. You do not grow out of brain damage, no matter how old you are, no matter how much progress you make. So early intervention is very helpful. It's very helpful to the child. It's very helpful to the parents, but it's not a cure and there is no cure. And until you learn the proper, you know, the proper science behind the brain damage and you learn how to make accommodations like you would for any other type of disability, you're going to have more symptoms develop because you're not accommodating the disability. So um, at that time, you know, we decided we were going to adopt our second child. We were in, I was telling you both before um, we started recording, we were in our MAPS class. We were going to go through foster adoption. We were in our MAPS class getting our training and all that training. And interesting note, in that MAPS class, and that was, our daughter's going to be six, so that was almost seven years ago, yeah. Um, not once was fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or prenatal alcohol exposure ever mentioned, which is an injustice because up to 80%, it's estimated about 75 to 80% of kids in foster care have an FASD. So uh, towards the end of those classes, uh, one night we get a phone call, or I'm sorry, we get a message, um, and it was from um, someone that uh, a, a close, um, she was actually our son, one of our son's babysitters, um, her family and our family were close. She messaged me. She said, I'm pregnant and I would like you guys to adopt my baby. And again, on the floor crying, you know, <laughs> almost, almost, you know, 12 years later, you know, 13, close to 13, our, our kids are 12 years and one, uh, 12 years and 11 months apart. 
So uh, the following June, our daughter was born and it was a much different journey. We were there for the adoption. Uh, we, you know, we picked out her name um, and her middle name is her birth mom's name. We have a very open adoption. Um, you know, it, it, has it been, you know, all wonderful? No, there have been some ugly parts too, but, but however, we've grown close. I consider my daughter's birth mother to be almost like a daughter to me. She's just, I love her and her family and how God works. She's also adopted too. And her brother and sister adopted. They were adopted from Mexico. When our daughter was close to being one was when our son started presenting with more serious symptoms of FASD, um, psychiatric symptoms. Um, I believe the percentage is about 90% of individuals that have an FASD have some sort of mental health diagnosis. And that can be anything. That could be anxiety, depression, anything like that. For our son, it was bipolar disorder, which at the time they were treating as depression and they were treating it with the wrong medications, which were actually making him worse. Um, so we moved to North Carolina more than five years ago and his symptoms were getting worse. We were still homeschooling. Um, and we found a wonderful FASD consultant in the area and we found a wonderful FASD support group because we up in New York, again, we would bring up uh, to, to whoever he was seeing, anybody, um, you know, we were told fetal alcohol and they were dismissive. And we finally found someone down here in North Carolina, you know, who said, I believe you. And, and here's a doctor who works with, with kids who are um, adopted and who, you know, through foster care, international adoption, um, and she knows about FASD. And she was willing to work with us and, and our son. So he was 14 at the time. And um, just before his 15th birthday, he was hospitalized because he, um, we were concerned that he was going to, to kill himself. And um, I think what scared my husband and I the most was when he was on the floor one night, just before he was hospitalized. And he said, mom and dad, I'm afraid of myself. And that's when we knew like, okay, all right, Lord, we got to give him to you because we don't know, you know, we don't know what to do. So he was hospitalized and, and having, Having your, your son, your, your baby boy who's never been away with you, away from you for more than a night, you know, having him hospitalized was just, it, it broke me. It broke me. Like, and I had this beautiful, typically developing daughter who I also needed to, you know, take care of and, and, you know, my husband and everything. And we would take turns and just, you know, it was like a relay race, you know, just passing the baton. And, so our, our son was, we were starting to see him, little glimpses of him back, you know, when we would go to visit him when he was hospitalized and he finally, um, he was ready to go home. You know, he wasn't a hundred percent stable, but he was stable enough to come home. And it was just before his 15th birthday. And um, the nurse called me to give me discharge, you know, instructions and everything before we were going to pick him up and everything. And so she said, okay, you know, his, his first diagnosis is bipolar disorder, which we knew and suspected. And they were like, okay, and this is, we think he should switch over to this medication and whatnot. And okay, great, everything. 
And number two on the sheet was fetal alcohol syndrome. And I just cried. I cried. And another guest on, on one of our shows said, when you get the diagnosis, you, you have relief and grief. And I think that's a really great way to sum it up. Relief because it has a name and you can finally say, okay, this is what happened. This is brain damage. This is, and, and it looks different for everybody. You know, and he had FAS, which is what the doctor 13 years prior was saying all with the, you know, the filtrum and the eyes and everything. Yes. But at, but another thing too is 90% of of individuals that have an FASD have no outward characteristics because those facial characteristics only form from days, I believe, and, and I, I believe this is, uh, I, I believe this is accurate, days 17 through 21 of pregnancy. And if you think about our, the United States and, and our society, 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. And, and that's including, you know, women who are married, you know, couples, anything like that. It, that's just not, you know, not, you know, single women or anything. So if you do the, do the math, um, there's far more kids, people impacted with an FASD than just limited to adoption, than just limited to foster care. So what we were able to do, and, and here's, here's the hopeful part, is we were able to learn about FASD and how FASD works and how FASD is a brain-based diagnosis. There's a wonderful book that I'm going to recommend um, to your readers, to anyone. It's called Trying Differently Rather Than Harder, and it's by Diane Malbin. And she wrote this book in the late 90s, and it's pretty much the the it's a purple book. It's on Amazon. It's about 20 bucks. She also founded um, the neurobehavioral approach to training, which is used not only for FASD, but other brain-based diagnoses. And, and she basically wrote the book on FASD. And it was, you know, we read that book actually before the diagnosis. And that's where, when we were like, yeah, this is what he has. This is what we, he has. So we did the training, you know, support group, support group really is just having support, talking to other parents who, because when you have a child that has an FASD, you say things that you never, ever thought you would say in your entire life. And, you know, and it's, it's also true of being when you're an adoptive parent too, you say things that like, oh my goodness, I'd never thought I'd say something like that, but you know, um, you do. So having connection with other families is really important. And that really helped us. Um, learning about how FASD is and how it's a brain-based disability and how somebody's chronological age is much higher than their developmental age. And then when you address that, then you're able to start making accommodations. So fast forward to today, um, our son graduated from homeschool last year in the middle of the pandemic. Um, he is a carpentry apprentice who he, he, he absolutely is just gifted. Um, the desk that I'm interviewing, doing this interview from was made by our son. Um, yeah, it's, it's really cool. Um, I, and, uh, and he's made so much more and he's just so talented. And he's also studying computer coding. He loves computer coding. So he's studying it part-time. 
And uh, three years ago, we bought what we affectionately call the Funky Farmhouse. We, we live about um, 30 miles south of Raleigh, and um, it has an in-law suite above the garage, and that's our son's, you know, we call it his apartment. When he needs us, we're here, and when he is doing his thing, he's doing his thing. And um, our daughter, we homeschool her, and uh, she is amazing. And it's really amazing having a typically developing child and a child that has a developmental disability. They're two very different tracks. And again, our adoption stories are two very different stories. Um, But again, I, I know that the Lord put us on this journey for a reason. And, um, and the reason is, is this. Natalie, you so beautifully shared um, so much. And so just thank you um, on behalf of Liz and I and our listeners, just for the way that um, you graciously explained, like you said, kind of this path that the Lord has put you on. And I think what we've learned, um, you know, through hosting two adoptive mamas, and I'm sure what you've learned too, is that God doesn't make mistakes. Um, you know, it's, he's so intentional with every piece and he uses it all. And it's just a real testimony, um, to you and your husband and your marriage and your faith, just how you have come around, um, both adoption stories for your son and daughter. So thanks so much for, um, all that you highlighted. Thanks so much for listening. In this episode, we were able to connect with adoptive mom and FASD advocate, Natalie, for part one of our two-part Hope with FASD episodes. Her story and ministry to support other families touched by FASD was informative, encouraging, and a great source of hope. We're excited to keep the conversation going with part two, available tomorrow at Two Adoptive Mamas. If you don't already, remember to follow us on Instagram. Until next time or tomorrow, remember, you've got this, Mama.